Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction this morning. Our Father, you have revealed to us these books of Scripture that through them, through the writings of the prophets of the Old Testament and apostles of the New Testament, we might come to understand who you are, who we are. We might come to understand who the Lord Jesus Christ is and why he had to die on the cross. And that we might come to understand the value of the spiritual life that we are given at salvation and how we are to feed it and nourish it, and how we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we continue our study this morning, we pray that you would use your word to challenge each of us, that as we study your word, we might come to realize that the principles here are not just abstract ideas, but that they impact the way we think, the way we live, and they're designed to change us, that as we go from faith to faith, as we grow and understand your word, that uh, your character will be displayed in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning you might want to open your Bibles to two passages, 2 Kings chapter 11, we'll begin in verse 20, but the parallel passage that I'll refer to a few times is in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. So we'll be in 2 Kings 11 primarily, but now and then we'll go over and look at a couple of passages in 2 Chronicles 24. One of the most important attributes in the character of God is his immutability. God never changes. And as part of his character of immutability, we frequently talk about his faithfulness, that God is always faithful. It's a combination of understanding his immutability, that he never changes, and his veracity, that God is always true. He is true to himself. He is true to his word. He is always true to his promises. And he is always faithful to us. In the New Testament, in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, we read, If we are faithless... He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now, this is part of a section in Second Timothy where there is 
uh, some controversy and debate over whether or not he is speaking of believers or unbelievers, but I think it's clear he is speaking of believers here, and that there are times when we are indeed faithless as believers. We are uh, rebellious. We still have a sin nature that sometimes we yield to, even if it is only for a short time, and sometimes we just downright like living on the basis of it, and we stay there for a very lengthy period of time. And there are those who would say that if you live in carnality or continuous carnality, that maybe you weren't ever saved because you're not living like the child of God. Well, you may not live like the child of your father either, according to the principles that he uh, taught you as he reared you, but that does not mean that he is no longer your father. It just means you are a rebellious child. And so Scripture teaches that as we are uh, become members of God's royal family by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, we enter into his family. We are adopted into that royal family, and he is now our father in a unique and special way, and that that relationship can never be lost. However, as members of the royal family of God, we can sometimes just begin to take life for granted, take God for granted, ignore his word, and live on the basis of our own arrogance. And nevertheless, God is still faithful to us. He will not desert us. He will not leave us or forsake us. And he continues to work in our lives. Now, that doctrine related to the faithfulness of God is is one of the uh, doctrines that's the underpinning to everything that we've studied in both First Kings and Second Kings again and again and again. We are reminded that we are sinners, that in Israel the kings often fail, and yet God continues to be faithful to the promises that he made in the Abrahamic covenant, the promises that he made in the Mosaic law, uh, both to bless them when they are obedient and to bring discipline into their life when they are disobedient. And so this is, again, illustrated in, this, uh, in the life of the king that we are studying right now, King Joash, who has, according to our study the last couple of weeks, just come to the throne as a young boy, seven years of age. And he came to the throne in a uh, time of tremendous apostasy in the northern, I mean, excuse me, the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's a time when uh, his uh, grandmother has brought tremendous uh, shame upon the southern kingdom. She is actually the daughter uh, or granddaughter of Ahab and, uh, and Jezebel, or the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And she has uh, brought with her into the southern kingdom this horrible uh, idol worship, the fertility cults from the northern kingdom. And she has erected these temples, temples to Baal and the Asherah, in the southern kingdom, and the people have been led astray. Not only that, but she has sought to uh, enmesh her herself in a position of power by killing all of the rightful heirs to the throne. And this was indeed a satanic attack upon the promise of God to David that there would always be one of his descendants upon the throne uh, of, Is of Israel and of Judah. And so the Davidic seed has been slaughtered by Athaliah, and she is just one of the most evil and wicked women of all of history. But despite human intentions, despite the, uh, all of the machinations of, of the 
uh, of her and of many others in human history to destroy the plan of God, God always preserves his word, always preserves his people, and always preserves his promise because he is faithful. And so there has been the preservation of the young infant Joash who was preserved by his um, by Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King uh, <clears throat> Joram and the sister of Ahaziah, and she has taken the son of the uh, of the king Ahaziah, the young Joash, and has hidden him away, put him put him under the protection of the high priest uh, Jehoiada in the temple, and he is raised in secrecy within the temple precincts, and Athaliah is unaware of it. And then we saw in the in our last study how they brought him out, and they had this uh, tremendous coronation service where he is crowned king uh, of Judah. And as that goes on, Athaliah looks, sees what is going on, cries out treason when she herself is the one who has committed treason against God. And she is then arrested and taken off the temple precincts where she was executed. And that uh, then led to a very important ceremony, which I focused on last time, a covenant renewal ceremony that's described in chapter 11, verse 17, where we read that Jehoiada made a covenant uh, between the Lord, the king, and the people, that they should be the Lord's people and also between the king and the people. So this is a renewal ceremony where they're going back to the Mosaic law and reaffirming the fact that God has entered into this covenant with them and they are now going to be obedient. And it is also between the king and the people in that within the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy chapter 17, there are also specific principles laid down for the uh, behavior of the king, that he was not to uh, multiply wives to himself. He was not to accumulate uh, uh, great wealth uh, to himself and that he was to write, handwrite a copy of the Mosaic Law, which he's given at this point. That is the testimony that was given to him at the, at the ceremony. He's to handwrite a copy for himself and read the, the Torah every single day so that he is reminded that even though he is the king of Judah, he is the servant of God and under God's authority. And so we went over that last time, and I put that within the context of the doctrine of repentance that is covered in the Scripture. Repentance, as I pointed out, is one of those words that's been so used and overused in uh, Christian context down through the centuries that it's lost a lot of its meaning. And there are those who uh, use it to em- emphasize remorse and sorrow and guilt and try to emphasize the fact that you have to uh, turn from your sins or repent of your sins in order to be saved. You have to uh, feel remorse and sorrow and guilt as you, in order to, again, receive the grace of God. And I pointed out that this isn't what the Bible teaches. The emphasis on the word is turning. Now, I got a couple of questions at the end last time that I wanted to uh, go back and just touch uh, on this topic again briefly to cover uh, these questions, and the questions had to do with the relation of repentance to salvation. Now, that wasn't the thrust of what I was looking at last time. I wasn't talking about the role of repentance in salvation, although I touched on that at the end. I was emphasizing the fact that if we're going to understand the biblical, most of the biblical passages that relate to repentance, where they are addressed to a Jewish audience or it involves a Jewish audience, 
that the focus of repentance is turning to God. It's not on turning away from sin. That's, that's not the emphasis. That's a consequence. But it is turning to God, and the focus is on restoring their relationship to God, and it must be understood in light of that command and promise back in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2, where God had said that Israel would indeed in the future turn from him and be disobedient, and God would enact all of the blessings and the curses that he had promised within the Mosaic law, but that there would come a time when they, when the Jews would turn back to him. And that's the idea. They would turn back to him and then God would restore them to the land and provide for them all of the many blessings that he had promised to them. And so from that verse, that, that passage, that message that Moses gave in Deuteronomy 30, from that point on, when you read of the uh, Israelites turning back to God, or you read in the New Testament of John the Baptist coming to the Israelites as a people, as a group, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and his disciples went to the, were sent by him, not to Gentiles, but to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and then when Peter has his initial message in Acts 2, he is saying, once again, repent and be baptized. And we brought in baptism there. It's not because you have to be baptized to be saved. It is because he's still addressing a Jewish audience. He is basically reiterating the same message that John the Baptist had had to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then he baptized people as a sign, a symbol of that repentance. So in all of those passages, uh, they're all addressed to a Jewish audience. Now, in, in a Jewish context, the Israelites are a covenant people with God. He has given them the Abrahamic covenant, which makes them as a people, uh, his people. And the Mosaic law is given as a uh, it's comparable to sanctification of the spiritual life principles in the in the church age. It, the Mosaic law was given to show how a how a how the people of God were to live. It's their standard of behavior. It wasn't given so that they could be saved by following the law. It was given as a code of conduct for the people of God uh, in the Old Testament the Israelites, and a recognition within the law that there would be times when they would be disobedient. And what was the solution? The solution was to turn to him. And that would include various things such as confession of sin, and there are examples of that. For example, in Nehemiah chapter 1, the beginning of Daniel, and Dan, I mean Daniel 9, where Daniel is praying as an intercessor for the people. It is a confession of sin and a turning back to God. So in all of those passages that we read about, both in the Old and New Testament addressed to Jews, where that command and that focus is on repentance, it is that turning to God uh, from disobedience to obedience. That's what we, what we see. Now, of course, that means that entails a mental change of mind. And what my point was that was to challenge us with the fact that we don't just think of repentance as just a mental activity alone. Sometimes it is. Sometimes God says think certain ways, we think other ways. So when we turn and change, we're changing the way we think. But in many cases, there is a change of behavior pattern. 
And so repentance is not something that is limited to a change of thought, but a change of thought that properly produces consequent action. For example, in the Mosaic Law, they were not to allow anyone to build temples to any false gods or goddesses within the land of Israel. And if that happened, then God said that they were to completely tear down those temples, destroy the altars, and to execute the uh, false prophets and priests of those false religions. So that uh, repentance not only means that in your head you change your mind, you say, well, I'm not going to worship Baal anymore, worship Asher anymore, but it means that as the corporate people of Israel, that once they make that decision in their head, then they go out and they tear down the temple that was constructed to Baal or the Asherah, and they destroy it completely, and then they execute the uh, priests and priestesses associated with that false religion. And so the point that I was illustrating here was that we see in verse 18 and 19 is that after they entered into this covenant renewal ceremony and they turned back to God, it resulted in the obedience to God's word. So they went out in verse uh, 18, and the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They thoroughly broke in pieces its altars and images and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars, and the priest appointed offerings over the house of the Lord. So this is a depiction of, of turning to God and the, the action that is consequent with that decision in obedience to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 3. Now, after all of this chaos that's been going, I mean, for years in the, in the southern kingdom, there's been this chaos from the uh, false teachers, from the idolatry, as well as in the northern kingdom, which has gone on for decades. And now there is then the destruction of the last living member of the house of Ahab. And Athaliah has been executed, and she has been removed, and the uh, temple to Baal has been removed. And there is a fascinating statement made in Second Kings 11, verse 20. This is the result in the life of a believer who turns to God and lives in obedience. So all the people of the land rejoiced, that is part of worship, and the city was quiet, for they had slain Athaliah with the sword in the king's house. That's an explanation. Why is it quiet? Because they have obeyed the Lord in removing the evil from their midst. And this word that is translated quiet is the Hebrew word shakat, which means to be secure, to have rest, to be undisturbed, or to be without anxiety. It's a word that occurs some 41 times in Scripture. It is a synonym of another word, noah, which is the basis for the name of Noah. And that word also means rest and is often used to describe the rest of God as well. And this word is often used in contrast to a period of war or violence or a period of chaos. And usually this rest is referred to as something that comes after a period of military threat or military dominion in Israel as a result of God's discipline on Israel. And then after they turn to him and after they get right with God, 
then they have victory over the foreign uh, foreign invader. And then we read, for example, several times in the book of Judges, and then they had rest in the land uh, for 40 years. It's also used of the quiet peace that a person, a believer, can have because they are right with God. In Isaiah 32:17, we read, The work of righteousness will be peace. That's the Hebrew word shalom, and it is another synonym for this word for rest. Shalom is a much broader word. And the effect of righteousness, notice the first is the work of righteousness will be peace, and the second stanza says, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. And that word quietness is our verb shakat, meaning that there is calm or there is rest. And no matter what else may be happening in life, when the believer is rightly focused on God and living on the basis of his word, then in his soul he can have tranquility, he can have stability, and there can be rest and an absence of stress and anxiety and worry. Often uh, anxiety is also the in contrast uh, to shakat. And, of course, that reminds us of various uh, promises and prohibitions in the New Testament, such as Philippians uh, chapter 4, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request, request be made known unto God. And in order to come to God in prayer, we have to be in fellowship and we have to be focusing on his word and his promises. And the result of that is it stabilizes our emotions and it brings a sense of, of calm or tranquility into our, into our souls and into our thinking. Now, verse 20 brings us to the introduction or introductory summary of Jehoash or also described as Joash. Those names are interchangeable, uh, just a simple addition of one Hebrew uh, syllable there changes it, but it, uh, you have the same, uh, you have a king of the same name in the northern kingdom, so uh, we need to avoid uh, confusion there. This is uh, Joash or Jehoash of Judah. And we get a summary of his reign here in verses 11:21 through 12:3. Jehoash was seven years old when he became king. In the seventh year of Jehu, so that is going to uh, correlate his reign to that of Jehu, who was the man that God had Elisha uh, anoint, and that he would come in as a uh, just as a as a steamroller to destroy the. A house of Ahab in the north, and that he came in to execute God's wrath and and uh, justice upon the apostate rulers of the northern kingdom. And so we see that in the seventh year of Jehu, uh, Jehoash became king. And so this tells us that Jehoash was born about the same time that Jehu uh, entered into his uh, cleansing role as God's instrument to rid the northern kingdom of the house uh, of Ahab, so that Athaliah's uh, murder of the Davidic children in the house is uh, just after Jehu has killed off uh, her relatives in the north. So in the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. He had one of the longest reigns in the Old Testament period. His mother's name, we're told, was Zebiah of Beersheba, so she came from far in the south of Judah, 
not in the north, so she would be far removed from the influence of the apostasy that would be seeping in from the northern kingdom. And then we get his spiritual evaluation in verse verses 2 and 3. Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Despite his later apostasy and disobedience, still God gives him a positive grade. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. See, that's the positive part, but we don't see a negative. We see his life is negative later, but there's not a negative assessment. His initial years, which were approximately 25 to 30 years, were were positive. Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him, but the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So he... There's always a qualification, and we run into this same thing and have uh, ever since we, uh, we saw Solomon, uh, that the kings will, even the best kings in the south, only go 90% of the way in terms of obeying the Lord. They never fully rid the land of all of the high places and all of the idolatry that is there. It is always an incomplete uh, sanctification, as it were. But the person who is the uh, real power behind the throne, the real influence on Jehoash, is Jehoiada. And we read about him over in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 24. And in verses 2 and 3, we see his influence. And even Jehoiada, who is presented as one of the great spiritual giants of the Old Testament, his, the way he trained Joash as a young boy, uh, that he is the focus of spiritual strength and obedience in the northern kingdom is clear. There, there's no mention of a prophet during this time. It is Jehoiada the high priest who is the spiritual uh, high point in Israel, the spiritual leader, I mean, rather in Judah, in the southern kingdom. And there, uh, but, but we're told that even his obedience is, on, is partial. And Second Chronicles 24, 2 and 3, we read, Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And Jehoiada took two wives for him, and he had sons and daughters. Now he had two wives. See, that's the compromise. Deuteronomy 17, the king was not to multiply wives to himself. He was to have only one wife. He was not supposed to get into polygamy. In the Old Testament, polygamy was always related to the influence of the world, the influence of apostasy, even though God made provision for taking care of those who had multiple wives within the Mosaic law. That was a concession in order to make sure that second, third, fourth wives were taken care of and were not just abandoned and abused uh, by the law. It wasn't an, an approval or... A, a, a prescription for a polygamy. You cannot get that anywhere from the Old Testament. Sometimes people try to do that, but it is always prohibited and always seen as a source of uh, real problems in the life of the individual and in the life, life of the nation. So Joash is obedient all the days of Jehoiada the priest. He's under his influence as long as Jehoiada... Jehoiada is there, Joash is obedient. But we see that his spiritual, the strength of his spiritual life isn't coming out of his own soul. 
It's not coming out of his own commitment to the Lord, his own understanding of the truth of God's word. It is uh, strengthened by the presence of Jehoiada. But as soon as Jehoiada is gone, Joash falls apart. Now we get a look at this, uh, at the value of Jehoiada in Second Chronicles 24, 15, and 16, where we read, But Jehoiada grew old and was full of days, and he died. He was 130 years old when he died. So I believe that God extended his life because even at this time in, in uh, Israel's history, living beyond 100 or 110 years of age was extremely unusual. God stretched out his life in order to give, uh, to give blessing and to give extended grace uh, to Jehoash. Now, we don't know exactly when he died, but it was near the time that uh, Joash was probably 30 years of age or somewhere uh, near that period of time, the last part of his life after Jeho- uh, Jehoiada dies, he goes into uh, rebellion against God. So that would mean that Jehoiada was... Uh, pretty close to 100 years of age when he received uh, Joash as a as a young uh, as an infant, and so here's this very old man taking care of this infant and raising him uh, in the temple. So he was buried. Now there's a this is going to be a point of contrast. Jehoiada is honored so much for his leadership in the nation and for his spiritual maturity that when he died. They buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel both toward God and his house, that is, the temple. Notice we haven't said much about the temple since we studied it under Solomon. We studied Solomon, the construction of the temple. We studied the uh, dedication of the temple and Solomon's temple prayer. But we haven't studied anything about the temple since then. It hasn't been mentioned. All of a sudden, the temple now comes back into focus. And so we're told that uh, Jehoiada was faithful toward God and toward his house or his the, the temple there in Jerusalem. And he's buried among the kings. Now, preview of coming attractions, when Jehoash dies, he has become so evil that there is a conspiracy against him. They assassinate him and they bury him, but they don't bury him with the kings. Nobody likes him by the time he dies. Here's this king who brings in a great revival, true, genuine, spiritual restoration, uh, and, and we're going to see in just a minute how he completely renovated, remodeled the temple and the spiritual focus that he had, and yet in just the last part of his life, he, he fails to hang in there. He fails to be consistent with his uh, dedication to the Lord, which had been there from the time that he was a young boy, and he turns his back on the Lord, and we see how someone who is a faithful believer used by God can go into some of the worst evil that we can see in human history. So early on in Joash's reign, he recognized that the temple had pretty much been abused for the last hundred or so years since Solomon dedicated it, and it was in a state of disrepair. There had been times when it had been plundered. There are times when the, some of the gold and the silver had been taken out of the temple and used to bribe and pay off uh, foreign invaders rather than trusting God uh, to protect and uh, take care of uh, Judah. 
they uh, used gold and silver. They put their trust in money. They put their trust in material things uh, for their protection. So Joash sees that the house of God is in disrepair, and he sets his heart on repairing the house of the Lord. The temple is going to be repaired and restored. And in verse 5 we read, Then he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God uh, from year to year and see that you do it quickly. See, he recognizes that it's not all going to come in in one year. It's going to take time. Each year go out and do this, and over a period of years we will have the uh, finances we need. We'll have the silver and gold that we need in order to repair the house of the Lord. And that he wanted them to implement this immediately. But they did not do it quickly. That is, they, uh, they dawdled. They collected some money, but they never really got started on the project. And we're told that it went on for some 23 years before Joash went back to the Levites to question why they had not completed, uh, completed the project. I would imagine that this would be one of those great passages that uh, would often uh, be the focus of a building plan or building program sermon. And there are certainly some applications there. And so this would be a a good place to go because the focus here isn't on uh, developing any kind of guilt manipulation among the people or any kind of uh, mandatory giving, but we're told that it was indeed based upon the same principle of grace giving and free will giving that we find uh, in the New Testament. And turn back with me to 2 Kings uh, chapter 12 if you'd gone to Chronicles, but we'll just look at the passage in 2 Kings, there's a few things that are said in, in Chronicles that I'll just bring in uh, by way of expansion. So we're told in uh, 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 5, he said, uh, let the priests take it themselves. That is the, uh, excuse me, let's go to verse, uh, verse 4. And Joash said to the priests, All the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, that is, into the temple, each man's census money, each man's assessment money, and all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord. Now, that last phrase is translated in the King James to make it uh, somewhat similar to what Paul says in Second Corinthians, that is, every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Uh, but that's not exactly what it says in, 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 the, uh, in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it has the idea that whatever comes upon a man's heart. So it has that idea. It is as the Lord moves an individual in terms of their, uh, their own spiritual life, that they give as a result of that, uh, that their giving may be, uh, may honor the Lord and not a result of the normal uh, process of of the normal tithes that were given in Israel. Now, in Israel, there were in the Old Testament the law there were really two kinds of offerings. The first was a mandatory mandatory offering, and this is related to the tithe system. And tithing means ten percent. And there were three different ten percent offerings that were given under the Mosaic law. Two of them were annual and one was every three years. You can read about the two annual tithes in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 21 to 24, and Numbers 18, 
21 and 24. These were designed to support the priesthood. They were basically the bureaucracy, the administration of the theocratic kingdom of God in Israel. And under that theocracy, it was the priesthood that administered uh, administered the kingdom and took care of the house of the Lord. So these two offerings were related to support for the temple and support for the for the priests. So obviously this system had broken down over the last hundred years since the time of Solomon is there. Uh, people weren't giving on the one hand, they were not following the law, and they were also supporting apostate apostate religions. So we have two of these ties, one were annual and one was every third year. And this was designed to provide for the widows and orphans, those who were incapable of taking care of themselves in the culture for whatever reason. They were left somewhat destitute. Then there was this uh, safety net there that would provide for them through that third tie that occurred every, every third year. But then there were also free will offerings, offerings that were motivated by an individual's desire simply to give in support of the Lord. And we have an early example of this in Exodus chapter 35, uh, verse 5, where Moses instructed the people to give for the tabernacle, for the construction of the tabernacle. And there his instructions are to take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord, gold, silver, and bronze. There were various other voluntary offerings that were given in the Old Testament as well as other uh, mandatory offerings. The one that is referred in this to in this passage where Jehoash says uh, all the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money, is a reference to the uh, half-shekel uh, temple offering that every male over the age of 20 had to pay as a ransom. That is, it is a picture of redemption because of, because of sin, and they were to pay this every time the people were numbered or every time a census uh, was taken. Exodus 30, verse 13 says, This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and the half shekel shall be then an offering to the Lord. Also, the, uh, the, the Jehoash would use money that came from vows. That relates to the second category, that which was uh, each man's assessment money. That would be related to vows based on Leviticus chapter 27, verse 2, as well as money from free will offerings. That is what anybody uh, chose to give to support the Lord also based on Leviticus 23:18 to 23. Now in verse 5 we're told that the priests were to collect this as they went throughout the country teaching the word and that each of them were then to use this to bring this back to the temple treasury and it would be used to repair the damages of the temple wherever any dilapidationary problem was found. Now we skip. Time goes past between verse 5 and verse 6 and we read, Now it was so... By the 23rd year of King Jehoash, that the priests had not repaired the damages of the temple. Now, it seems to me 23 years is a pretty long time before you follow up on the purpose for collecting, uh, collecting the offerings. But uh, at the rate that, that the money was given, it would be understood that this would take uh, some time. 
But 23 years just seems like a pretty long time, and the temple wasn't being repaired. And finally, uh, Jehoash goes to the priest to find out why this hasn't uh, taken place. And he calls in Jehoiada the high priest and the other priests and begins to question them in verse 7. And as a result of it, he takes the responsibility of the repair for the temple and the collection of funds away from the priests because they have been negligent in fulfilling their responsibility. And so verse 8 says, And the priests agreed that they would neither receive uh, more money from the people nor repair the damages of the temple. In other words, they agreed that they're no longer going to be responsible for it and it's going to go uh, into other hands. And so there's a restructuring of the responsibilities of the priest that takes place here, and as well as the collection of the money. And in verse 9 we read, Then Jehoiada the priest took a chest, bored a hole in its lid, and set it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord. So as you enter the temple and there was the altar, then to the right of the altar they would set down a lockbox, a literal lockbox where the money would go, and each day that money would be then set aside and secured, and they would only repair that which they could pay for. They weren't going into debt to take care of the uh, temple. They were waiting until they had enough money, and when they had enough money, then they would uh, uh, do what they could on the basis of that money, a pay-as-you-go process for repairing the temple. Verse 10, so it was whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest that the king's scribe and the high priest came up and put it in bags, counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. And then they gave the money uh, which had been apportioned into the hands of those who did the work. So they began to pay the laborers, the artisans, the craftsmen to do the work, and they paid them as they went along. And all of the work that was done, all of the ways in which the money was handled was done uh, with integrity, we read, skipping down to verse 15, Moreover, they did not require an account from the men into whose hands they delivered the money to be paid to workmen, for they dealt faithfully. And then a final note that the money from the trespass offerings and the money from the sin offerings, that which came in whenever people would buy animals that would be used in those uh, sacrifices, that that money was not brought into the house of the Lord. What that means is that money was not used for the uh, repair of the temple. It belonged to the priest, which was its original design, was to help to take care of the livelihood uh, of the priests. And so in these verses, we have a clear picture of the spiritual priorities of Jehoash. He is focused on honoring God, and to honor God, the house of the Lord need not be a place that is torn down or seen to be a place of disrepair. Uh, The Lord is to be the highest priority in Judah, and they are to glorify God by making sure that the uh, physical house of the Lord was in proper condition. Now, it's not restored to the glories of the Solomonic Temple. The Solomonic Temple had incredible amounts of gold and, and silver in the temple, but they don't have that wealth now because of the years of disobedience to God. They have been under divine discipline, and they have lost their prosperity. And so they can't go back and construct the temple in the same way Solomon did because God, God hasn't blessed them because they have been 
uh, been disobedient. And so their disobedience had had clear economic uh, consequences uh, in their life. Now, it's at this time, following the repair of the temple, that Jehoiada finally dies at the age of 130. And once he dies, things begin to change. Just like um, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, uh, Jehoash falls under the evil counsel of uh, his advisors who are not focused on spiritual priorities. And in that second part of his life, his priorities shift. He's influenced by the wrong people. And it is not long before he doesn't value the Lord or the Lord's house or the Lord's will anymore. In Second Chronicles 24:17, we get the understanding of this. See where where Second Kings ends is with the uh, two verse description of the uh, military fight that he has, the military invasion of Judah with uh, Hazael, the king of Syria. We're not told why that happens, but we can guess because of our understanding of Deuteronomy that any time Israel is invaded, or Israel or Judah was invaded successfully by an external enemy, that that was because of divine discipline and related to their disobedience. Second Chronicles brings that out. In Second Chronicles 24:17, we read that after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. Therefore they left the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and they served wooden images and idols and wrath. That is, the judgment of God came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. This means that God is going to start bringing in the aspects of divine discipline as outlined in the five uh, stages of divine discipline in Leviticus 26. Yet God sent prophets to them. Even in judgment, God is always gracious, and he sends prophets to Israel to warn them and to call them back in obedience. So he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. There's that idea of return again, the idea of uh, true repentance, meaning turning back to the Lord. And they testified against them but they would not listen. See that word there, testified? They are bringing a lawsuit, as it were, like, a, like an attorney general of a, of, a, of a state, to those who are violating the law. And yet the people would not listen. The advisors would not listen. Uh, Joash would not listen. Then we're told of one example, and this shows how far Joash has, has deteriorated in his spiritual life. In verse 20 we read, then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. So this would have been a friend. This would have been someone Jehoash would have grown up with, someone he would know, someone he had a personal relationship with. The Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest who stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? See, their economic prosperity of the nation is directly related to the spiritual condition of the people. Now, that's not something you're going to read and learn about in Economics 101. You're not going to hear about that on any of the... uh, uh, shows that you listen to on uh, talk radio that talk about how to get out of debt and how to improve your personal financial circumstances because 
And those approaches to economics, they're focused totally on empirical uh, results, only what they can measure, only what they can observe. And you can't measure, observe, and quantify uh, somebody's spiritual condition. And that spiritual condition is what God emphasizes is the ultimate causative factor in economics as well as, as history. And so we read here that the reason that they cannot prosper the reason that the nation is under economic duress is because they have disobeyed the law and they have forsaken the Lord, and because of that, he has also forsaken them. So how did they respond? Do they respond by saying, yes, you're right, like they did with uh, when Joash first became king and reconfirmed the covenant with Moses and, and uh, uh, humbled themselves before God? No. They completely rejected his message. They blamed the messenger for their problems. Now, we're going to see a lot of that, I think, in this nation in coming years. We're already seeing it, where Christians are being targeted more and more as the enemy. You can say anything judgmental and derogatory you want about Christians. If you said the same things about any other uh, group in the United States, you would be uh, roundly persecuted and condemned for it. You could say, uh, you could say anything, you can say anything you want to about Christians. Blame them for everything. But if you said that about certain ethnic minorities or you said that about other religious groups, uh, you would be in trouble. So this is, uh, becoming more and more accepted today to condemn Christians for the problems that we have in this country. In fact, I have heard, uh, some people, uh, say, and I've read this on some uh, some websites and some blogs that if we could just get rid of all the Christians, then we would have economic prosperity and that we could uh, have a true utopian state and we could have gay marriage and we could have all of the, we could have perfect health care and all of these other things that are the dreams of the utopians and the socialist liberals in this nation that if we would just get rid of the Christians, then all these other things would come in. And so we get blamed for bringing the message. And it's, and the message is that the reason that we are in the state we're in in this nation is because we have turned our back upon God and the principles that are contained within the scripture. Same thing happened at the time of uh, Joash. So the people, so the people conspired against him, against Zechariah. This is not the Zechariah who writes after the return from the exile, the uh, book at the end of the Old Testament. This is Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. Says So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, Jehoash, he is firmly part of this conspiracy. At his command, they stoned him with the stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Now remember back when he is young and he is crowned, Athaliah shows up in the temple where they're having the coronation ceremony, and Jehoiada said, don't, don't kill her here. Take her outside of the temple. We have to respect the house of the Lord and execute her outside, but not on consecrated ground. Well, Jehoash doesn't care anymore. And so they execute the messenger of God, who is probably someone he has known personally uh, for his entire life, and he has him... Uh, executed, has him killed in the house of the Lord. And the conclusion is, thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness. Somebody who has no gratitude 
has lost their understanding of humanity. They're operating on pure arrogance. Uh, Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but killed his son, and as he died he said, uh, the Lord look on it and repay. That's what uh, Zechariah said, calling upon God to bring justice in this in this event. Now back to uh, our passage in Second Kings, chapter chapter twelve. We read about the uh, the next event. The next event is this invasion of Hazael. Hazael, the king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath. That's in Philistia. Took it and then set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And Jehoash, the king of Judah, took all the sacred things that his fathers, uh, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, the kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred things. Now, instead of trusting God, as Hezekiah does later on, who humbled himself before God and prayed to God to deliver them from the enemy, instead of trusting God, he puts his trust in things and material possessions and his own personal wealth, and so he's going to take all of that which he has put and which he and others have put in the temple, and he is going to use that to buy off Hazael. And so he uh, takes the, he plunders the house of the Lord, he steals from the Lord, and he gives this to Hazael, the king of Syria, who gets what he came for, and so he leaves. And then we're given the summary of Joash. Now, the rest of the acts of Joash. And all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And his servants arose and formed a conspiracy, and they killed Joash. Now, we learn from Second Chronicles he's wounded in a battle, and they conspired to kill him in the house of the Milo, which goes down to Scylla. This is outside of, uh, this is in the presence of Jerusalem, uh, there between the uh, palace of the king and the temple where he was recovering from his wounds. And then we're told who was involved in the uh, conspiracy and the assassination plot. And the conclusion is, at the end of verse 21, so he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. But in Chronicles, we're told that when he died, uh, they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. And so he is dishonored. They do not respect him. He has died in a, a spiritual rebellion against God, and he has brought the people to a terrible end because of his personal apostasy. Now, there are four things we need to remember that come out of this passage. First of all, God's blessing is always tied to his faithfulness. His discipline is always tied to his faithfulness because God is faithful to his word. He blesses us when we are in right relationship to him, not because of what we do, but because of the, the fact that we possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. So God's blessing is tied to his faithfulness, and he is faithful to his word. In the church age, we recognize that that blessing is not because of obedience, but it's because we possess the righteousness of God, not because we do something good, but because we have the righteousness of Christ. That's the first reason. And the second reason is then because we are in right relationship to God in terms of fellowship and we are walking with him. Third, we need to recognize that when we live in extended disobedience to God, 
It destroys our perspective. It wipes out our values. It reverses our priorities, as we saw with, with Joash. What he loved as a young man and through most of his life, he, he hates by the time he is old. He completely turns his back on everything he has committed himself to, everything he has been devoted to for the first uh, 40 or more years, or 30 or more years of his life. And during that last part of his life, he is the one who turns his back on God and he hates what he had formerly loved and he seeks to destroy then anything that reminds him of God. And this is the same thing we see in the lives of people. As they are suppressing the truth of righteousness, uh, in their, in, suppressing the truth by unrighteousness in their soul, then whenever anything comes along in order that, that, that takes the lid off of that a little bit, so that, that that rebellion is exposed, then they just react in extreme hostility. And so we end up with Joash, who had once honored God, restored the temple, plundering the temple in order to buy off the pagans rather than trusting God. But the hope is that just as we saw with Israel at the beginning of his reign, when they're mired in apostasy, there was hope they could turn to God. There, as long as jo- Joash was alive, he could turn to God. That's our hope. Even though we may uh, disobey God, we may get away from the Lord in many different ways, we may be in all kinds of spiritual rebellion, there is always the promise of God that there is that hope of restoration, that hope of turning to him uh, through confession of sin and refocusing on his word and that that, that relationship with God can be restored. That's grace. That's grace. We don't have to stay stuck in spiritual rebellion. We can always turn back to God, and he will indeed bless us. But above all things, the first way we ever turn back to God is by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. Once you believe in Jesus Christ and you're in the family of God, you can't lose that salvation. But you can certainly, like Joash did, become so rebellious that you look like someone who is not a believer. You may even be worse than anyone who is an unbeliever. I mean, certainly Joash's behavior was as horrible as any of the actions of Ahab or Jezebel or Athaliah. And yet uh, he was still a believer and he had been blessed by God, but he dies miserable in a miserable way, in a way that just destroyed his, his uh, previous testimony where the people hate and despise him and where God was not glorified with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that there's always hope. There's always the opportunity to uh, be saved if we've never trusted Christ as Savior. There's always the opportunity to turn back to you if we've been uh, disobedient and rebellious. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain that they would take this opportunity to trust in you and this opportunity to uh, make it clear that uh, that they are indeed uh, your child because they have trusted in Christ as Savior, that they may have that assurance and confidence of their salvation. Father, we pray for those of us who are believers that you would challenge us with your word, the importance of uh, persevering and enduring and not falling into disobedience and rebelliousness as Joash did, And that even if we have been in that state, there is the hope that we can still turn back to to you and that in love you will forgive us and restore that relationship. 
And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.